Just a quick shout out before we get into today's show. If you haven't been to allsauthors.com, you are missing an excellent resource for every type of book you could want on Alzheimer's and dementia. Today's guest is one of the founders of All's Authors. I'm sure you're going to love to hear her story and how her journey with Alzheimer's led to the creation of this fantastic resource. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those of us caring for a loved one with memory loss. Good afternoon, everybody. With me today is Jean Lee. She is the author of Alzheimer's Daughter, and she is also the co-founder of the Alls Authors. It's a website we've talked about a lot in the past. Her co-founder is Marianne Shuko, who you've heard a couple of times on the podcast. So thanks very much, Jean. I'm so glad to get to talk to you this afternoon. Thank you, Jennifer. Tell me how you got on this journey. I know from reading your biography on the website that your parents were both diagnosed with Alzheimer's on the same day. That must have felt a bit like the end of the world. It, it did, uh, Jennifer, but it was not unexpected. Um, my sister and I, my sister lived a thousand miles away, um, my only sibling, yet she was my greatest support. Uh, we grew a close relationship during our parents' illness, and we began to notice changes in them around age 80, um, and they were diagnosed at age 86, and probably two years before the diagnosis, my sister suggested that I start a journal so that when we talked, I wasn't just saying things like, oh, this week, these weird things happened, but I could actually open up my journal and tell her exactly what had happened. And that way we could document frequencies, progression, that kind of thing. So I'd been keeping that journal for about two years at the time of their diagnosis. And that journal became an integral part of their diagnosis too, as uh, geriatric specialists and social workers in that area took a look at that, the progression of the timeline. So even though it was an incredible blow to have them both diagnosed on the same day, it was not unexpected and it was a validation of um, what we were already suspecting. So helping, keeping the journal was probably really, really helpful and smart. I, do you, I would assume you would recommend everybody do that? Um, it, it certainly worked for me and I don't think I would have kept it if, it had, if I'd had a nearby sibling. But because my sibling was so far away, she said, Jean, why don't you do this so that, you know, we can both stay informed. And really, it was her idea, and, and it worked out very well. It, it was not without guilt, though. Um, I, I was a third-grade teacher at the time, and I just started it in, the, in a spiral-bound notebook that none of my students wanted. And I felt so guilty writing these things about my parents. I felt as though I was tattling on paper. Um, And I prefaced it by saying, I'm only doing this um, so that this can be used as a helpful tool in the future. And I buried it in the bottom of my kitchen junk drawer and only pulled it out to write in it and then hid it again, because I, I didn't want anyone to find these traitorous things that I was writing about my parents. So the journal itself filled me with a lot of guilt, recording these things and writing about my wonderful parents. I can relate a little bit. I, um, I do Instagram stories with my mom, generally on Tuesdays, because I visit with her on Mondays. And it took me a long time to get over the feeling, and I still feel this way, but not as acutely, that I was um, you, you know, using her in a negative way. But I get, I get the most positive comments 
and people say, oh yeah, my mom did the same thing and then she stopped. And so I get validation for the way I feel and connect with other caregivers. So it's, I still feel guilty, which is such a caregiver trait, but yeah, I, you know, my mom's declined a lot in the last three months and we're going through a unusual health issue. Doctors trying to figure out what's going on and it's just crazy. You know, she, when I was there Monday, it was because it was so hot, we couldn't go out and, and do our typical kid watching. We like to, she likes to watch kids. <laughs> Sometimes I, I get worried that the police are going to come tap me on the shoulder and say, excuse me, ladies, but what are you two doing? <laughs> um, but the kids have all gone back to school and it was very hot. And I thought I, she's having um, bladder issues or I wasn't sure if it was kidney issues. So I thought I probably shouldn't take her out in the extreme heat because it's hard to get water in her. So we sat in her room and she just talked, talk, 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 talk at me. And none of it made any sense in any kind of context. And when, if you look at the, or listen to the video, you can't see me, but if you, when you hear me, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. And then she said something about my dad. And I said, yeah, that's a good question. And if you know our story, you'll know that that's kind of, it's like a challenge because my dad's been gone for two and a half years. And it's kind of funny because when we were at the doctor, she gets very upset. You know, why is my husband not driving? Why is, and she just kind of rants and raves. And I'll say, well, you tell me. That way I don't have to come up with a fib or, you know, because if I tell her, well, he doesn't drive anymore because he doesn't see well, which is not entirely untrue. (laughs) Hard to see well when you're gone. Uh You know, I just say, you tell me. And then she laughs and she goes on to something else. So it always works. And my husband's the other day. Yeah. It's so it's, I've had to find all kinds of comments like that, that kind of, speak to the reality for me, but make sense to her in her world. It's, as you know, quite the challenge. So what type of things were you noticing and documenting with your parents over those two years? I can totally understand how you felt guilty though. (laughs) I would say the very first thing that I noticed that there, there were things that I just couldn't document because they, I wasn't sure if I was seeing them or not, seeing these things. It's like I go away and I think, is that really odd or not? Are they really doing odd things or am I imagining it? But I would say the very first concrete thing that I could document was my mother losing nouns. Mm. She could not say the name of things. She would want me to, I, I do her shopping And she'd say, can you get me, can you get me, can you get me? And I'd try to help. And then she'd bring me the banana to show Mm. me. Um, She couldn't come up with the name of things. Uh, We had always lived in cozy clutter. So the state of the house was declining for certain. But that was not a huge red flag to me because they were aging We'd always lived in clutter. Um, Another red flag, and this was very gradual, was that my mom stopped cooking. And the kitchen, the stovetop, everything was piled with packaged food um, to the point she couldn't use the stove. And I became worried if she would, you know, turn a burner on. There was stuff all over it. and they, we lived in a very small town, population about 700, one restaurant, and they were a block from the restaurant, and they began to eat two meals a day at that restaurant every day of the week. So they, you know, they remained well fed, but it was so gradual that we, I just see them eating at the restaurant all the time. But in retrospect, the fact that she had been a wonderful cook and baked delicious, she was very much a dessert kind of a person, and she was not doing any of that anymore, you know, that was a red flag for sure. Um, 
My dad, on the other hand, though, you know, my mom had always had a sweet tooth, had always carried some extra weight. My dad was very physically fit. He was still working. He walked to work every day, but at work, he thought he was working, but he was not functioning. And so rather than the cozy clutter that she lived in, which became really hoarding, my, my dad tried so to hold it together, together that he would take a ruler and underline everything like in the Wall Street Journal and then go back over it and highlight it all in an effort to sort out his thoughts. So he tried to remain so organized where just the disorganized part of her took over but they were two symptoms leading to the same and the same result of a dual diagnosis of Alzheimer's. It still blows my mind. <laughs> Both of them. Ugh. We went through a short time with my dad. He was a diabetic with a donated kidney and he did not want to go back on dialysis, which you would have thought he'd taken better care of the kidney that was donated. Um, <laughs> and, we showed up and my he said something to my husband that it indicated my dad thought it was 13 years earlier. It was 1998, oh, wow. so 2016, which is more than 13 years. I can do math. And wow. had I known what was going on, I would, would have not taken him to the hospital. I would not have gone down that whole path. But after he passed away and I was doing more research on the disease, because then it was so much more obvious that mom was much worse off, much further down the road with the Alzheimer's than even I was aware. And I had just, you know, seen them, you know, about two weeks before all of this nightmare started. And he kind of covered for her. But I know after reading more things and definitely not as nice of books as you guys have, there was red flags that his memory was not so great. And now you're saying some things that I'm like, huh, I think that might be an indication too. So I'm kind of getting a, a retrospective look at warning signs that were easily missed because my mom was so far down the road with her Alzheimer's. It was, you know, but we had to have 24 seven caregivers when he was on hospice and he didn't understand why, you know, he didn't understand why they were there. He didn't think he needed help. So we, he didn't fight with them physically, but he didn't let them help him when he needed help. And it was, ugh. So, you know, and then my mom, mm -hmm. she kind of accepted the help. And I'm not really sure why, because she's not good at that in the uh, care residence. I mean, she does and she doesn't. It's really strange. But she goes through these periods of being very ornery and resisting assistance, you know, telling people I don't need help when she does. So I can only imagine having two parents like that. So how long did you, how long did they live after the diagnosis? So they were diagnosed uh, in 2006 and my mom passed away in 2010. My dad lived yet another year and passed away in 2011. Um, they remained very connected as a couple throughout the whole journey um, they never, ever once uh, took me aside, even in the early part, and said, your mom is doing these weird things. I'm worried about her, or I'm worried about your dad, and he's not paying the bills, or that kind of thing. Never. They remained a tight team, and then it became, and which was really lovely in retrospect, that they were able to stay so connected even even till the very end when they really couldn't say each other's names they were just their hearts were so connected um and my sister and I then became the bad guys e even though we had had a a very respectful family you know we'd never had disagreements but the two of them remaining a connected couple allowed them to place blame on us. And we were able to handle that instead of having them, you know, at unease with one another. So it's just the way it worked in our situation. 
Which does sound very nice. I wonder if it's because they're like your dad's memory loss made it easy to not get frustrated with your mom and the weird things she would do. Cause my dad would get frustrated and irritated and snap at my mom in nanoseconds. It felt like sometimes. And I would say, I would try to be very calm and positive and just say, I know it's frustrating, but you know, it doesn't help because now she's angry at you. And so my mom was really great at holding the grudge. I've never known somebody hold a grudge on you for a month. Ugh. So she would be mad at my father and she'd go off and do her things, which weren't necessarily normal because of her disease. So it just, it just made everything worse. So now did you use the journal as like the backbone for your, your book? That's a great question. I never intended to write a book. It was not on my bucket list. This was a very private personal thing that I was going through. Um, because I lived in such a small town, I didn't share this diagnosis with anyone. In my mind, it was a part of my parents' healthcare privacy, and I had no right to talk about it. But in my workplace, I, I worked in, the lo- in a local school district, and because we were such a small town, some of my friends that I taught with were not from my community. So a very small handful of people, maybe three people, I confided in only after their parents had passed and I had some inkling that they had gone through an Alzheimer's experience as well. And, you know, we would talk before or after school and they'd say, Jean, you know, we just can't believe that both of your parents are going through this at the same time. You should write a book about this. And I thought, what? I, I am barely staying alive here. I don't have time to write my lesson plans. I'm just looking for the whole air hole to breathe through. And I just completely dismissed that until I sat with my dad one week after my mother died. And he had absolutely no knowledge of her, no memory of her, nothing. She was gone. 66 years of marriage dissolved. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe this could maybe this should be recorded for my family at least. Maybe this could help others. So I started on that manuscript um, using the journal and fleshing that out because the journal was dates and I took them to the doctor and their blood pressure was this and their pulse was this and, you know, that kind of thing. So I began to build them around the journal still thinking this was going to be a family story. And I decided I would join a a local writing group to write my family story well. And when they got a hold of what I had written, they said, Jean, this has such a larger scope than your family. So many other people can be helped by reading this journal, this journey. And so they told me, all right, We've got to get to know your parents before this happened. So that's the first 30 pages of the book is, you know, trying to show the lifestyle that we led in the 1950s, how we were raised, um, how mom and dad were connected during that time. And then the diagnosis happens and we, I go through the journal that is fleshed out and that proceeds up to maybe two-thirds of the book until we have to move them to a care facility. And then the last third of the book is not journal entries, but it's what happened at that point once we removed them from their house, their house until their passing. So that's, that's how it became a book. And without that writing group, pressing me to publish it. Um, I queried for about a year, different agents, you know, thinking, okay, 
if I if an agent doesn't pick up this book, it's just not worthy and forget it. I'm not going to publish it. Um, and I had interest from one agent who wrote back to me and said, you know, I put your manuscript in front of beta readers. They really like this story, but you have no name or fame with which to sell a book. So we can't take a risk with you. So <laughs> I thought, okay. Yes. Yes. But I had read through the journey and I thought, okay, other people have done this. And I knew Marianne Shuko had written and self-published Blue Hydrangeas. So I thought, okay, I'm going to follow her lead. If she could figure this out, I'm going to figure it out. And I figured it out. I published it. But I'll tell you the night that I pushed the final publish button, <laughs> I really felt like I could be struck by lightning and die right there because I was so guilt laden for publishing this. And then I, I thought and kind of hoped that it would just rot in the basement of Amazon and it would only be my family that read it, you know? And I, I knew I had the safety zone of I could always unpublish it if I needed to. But people began to read it and I got some positive reviews on it, which was, like, I, I can't even believe this. So I was still filled with this uncertainty and I thought, I'm going to send this book to Marianne Shuko and just see what she thinks of it. Should I continue with it? Should I pull it down? Is it worthy? And for me to reach out to Marianne Shuko, that was reaching out, out to greatness for me. <laughs> and I thought, she probably gets a ton of mail. She's going to throw this in the trash. I'll never hear from her. And she got back to me. And she said, I love your book. Would you help me raise awareness of books about Alzheimer's and dementia? Um, because hers is fiction. And as you know, she's a nurse and she had written it kind of as an elder romance because, you know, the couple in her book is very connected and she was not finding a home for it, except with people who are, were reading about Alzheimer's. And, you know, she was trying to market it with romance novels and the cover just didn't fit. There are these, you know, <laughs> at that time, her cover was these beautiful blue hydrangeas, but then she changed it to this gray haired couple on the beach. And it just didn't work, you know, with other um, romances, you know, bare chested men and that kind of stuff. And so she said, would you help me raise awareness? And I was flabbergasted. I said, of course. And she said, who else have you read? And I said, well, I've read Vicky Tapia's Somebody Stole My Iron. And she said, let's get a hold of her and see if we can work together. And so that's how all authors began. We really began trying to write for other websites. Um, and then about a year in, we decided, why don't we ask? I mean, we were trying to write for caregiving websites, that kind of thing, not, not necessarily book websites. About a year in, we thought, well, you know, there are a lot of other authors out there that have written about Alzheimer's. What if we invited them to write for us, to tell the story behind their story for us? And, and we started to do that. And I mean, the response has been incredible. So since 2016, we began that in 2016. Since that time, we've had more than 200 authors of Alzheimer's and dementia books write for us about their, the story behind their story. And we don't have to approach other people now. They, they come to us and we're scheduled... It, our next post that we would schedule, I mean, we're completely filled until the beginning of February of next year. So if someone were to contact us today, we couldn't possibly post them until February of next year. So it's amazing. Um, and I think, Jennifer, that's what has helped my heart heal from the trauma of revealing a personal story it's like you said about your Insta uh, podcasts or 
um, I'm, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the exact word you read there. But when, when you realize people reach back to you and say, thank you for doing this, this really helped me, then you realize then the material you're pulling together and this venue, the people you're interviewing, podcasting with um, on your YouTube channel, it's helping other people feel less alone. And through sharing those personal difficult vulnerabilities, we as alt authors hope to give healing to those who are living it now. This is definitely not a fun journey at all. Do you feel differently now that instead of revealing their personal health secrets that you're helping lift the stigma from this disease because my mom never admitted that she was she had an issue and we we thought I thought she went through all the testing to donate a kidney to my dad in the summer of 2008 and she was rejected for cognitive impairment which wasn't surprising I thought that was when she was diagnosed. I thought, okay, finally, we're, you know, no more pretending that there's not a problem. And I found out at the beginning of 2019, or maybe it was in somewhere the fall of 2018, when her general physician, I told him, my sister and I can't, we can't function with all this lack of medical knowledge that they never told us about. So I need to see her diagnosis. So he, he brought it out. She was actually donut, do, diagnosed. I was kept trying to say donated. <laughs> Three years later, she was um, literally 37 months later, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And by that point, I mean, she flunked all the tests with flying colors. She, it, there was no denying it at that point. It was like, oh, yeah, she has Alzheimer's. Duh. You know, not, it was not a surprise. And, but they didn't, they didn't ever tell us. I mean, I guess my dad thought, okay, well, it's obvious, so why bother? I don't, I don't know why they never discussed it with us. But, you know, so I, and her mom had memory loss. It was either because of an aneurysm or undiagnosed Alzheimer's. And my, also my maternal great-grandmother had no memories at the end of her life. So we have plenty of wow. family history Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit of a surprise to me that she was in such huge denial. Nowadays, she tells me frequently, well, my brain just doesn't work very well anymore. Sometimes I say, yeah, you think? It's <laughs> just like, no kidding. <laughs> well, I relate because my parents, you know, they both sat in and heard the diagnosis. My dad, a very peaceful man, became enraged and stood up and actually wanted to fight the doctor. It was, it was terrible. And we never spoke the word again from, from that diagnosis. We never spoke it in front of them again, nor did they ever utter the word Alzheimer's. It was just such an affront to them, you know. So, yeah, I hope that we are lifting the stigma and the silence. And as our generation knows more, and as we age, and as we begin to fail with memory impairment, that we can acknowledge that and not feel so bad about it. I would say about 15% of the authors who have written for all authors are writing their way through memory impairment. Those are so powerful. They've written books about their progression. Oh, wow. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, and that's so amazing that, you know, some of them are very inspirational. Yes, this is happening to me, yet I still have a purpose in my life. Um, Some are writing about Louis body and, and the um, uncharacteristic things that are happening to them, you know, the rages that are happening to them. And all of those are so helpful to read. And I don't think anything like that existed 
a decade ago, maybe even five years ago, that people were willing to acknowledge and write about their own progression. Yeah, I can see that being very beneficial to people like my mom, even my dad, maybe, to understand. Mm -hmm. As I find, I talk to caregivers who don't, they don't have the benefit of talking to as many wonderful people as I do. And I've learned a lot, and I'm in an Alzheimer's Association support group, and I'm part of our state advocacy, so I have a very large network, and there's still days I feel alone, but it's, there's days when I talk to people, and it's like, you need to get out of this bubble and talk to other people like me and you and all these other people, because they just, they don't seem to understand the disease. Like, my mom's visual processing is shot. I mean, you would think, you know, why aren't you taking her to the eye doctor? She obviously needs glasses. Well, one, she probably wouldn't wear them at this point. But I don't think that, I know that's not the case. She's got no depth perception. Shadows make her very uneasy and she tries to walk around them, which is, that's kind of funny, but also sad. And I didn't know two years ago or almost two years ago, the things that I know now, and there's things I did with her then that I, I wouldn't have tried. Like she can't do the activities at the uh, residence she's at because she doesn't have the manual dexterity anymore. She doesn't have the visual processing anymore and the memory. She keeps saying, well, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And it's like, yeah, we're just coloring or just playing bingo. Um, so it's really sad, but not knowing, like when I, I tried to do a, a really basic craft project with her about eight months after she moved in, because it was the first holiday season that the three grandkids weren't going to have any kind of holiday with their grandmother. I mean, obviously I couldn't do anything about my dad being gone. And I had this project that was very simple and relaxing or so I thought, it was a nightmare. Because I kept thinking the problem was her memory, that she just was forgetting what we were doing. And was actually just, it was beyond her skill set. And now that I've learned more about the disease, I understand, you know, like when we walk, when we go to the park to watch kids, she literally walks about 10 or 12 feet behind me, which is very frustrating. Because she's mm-hmm. not super steady because she's always watching her feet Mm. she's walking bent over and tapping along feeling her way with her feet and I can't get her to walk next to me and I recently learned um I did the um virtual dementia tour which is is trippy and I went to Tipa Snow's conference and she demonstrated putting both hands on you know circling your eyes like binoculars and then, like, look down at your chest. It's like, I can't see my chest. And that's why wow. they don't realize they've got food on their front. And she said, yeah. your mom doesn't have peripheral vision. She can't see you if she's next to you. And I'm like, one of these days she's going to fall oh, on her face. Yeah, it was oh, like, wow. yeah, just that tiny little tidbit of information. Because here I am walking, and I walk pretty slowly. And here's right. this old lady walking behind me. So I look like this callous human not walking slow or you know not letting the old lady catch up but if I stop she stops so I can't even get her to catch up. it's like you know it's just sometimes wow. you just stand in the parking lot and scream but at least now I understand why all that happens because none of that would make sense just because of memory loss she wouldn't trail behind me you know like some poor peasant woman <laughs> and you know none of that stuff would would make sense just because of, you know, her memory doesn't work. So I'm really trying to help people learn about the disease and what happens. And I always relate it to a a really old computer that doesn't work so well anymore. So I think that's a reference. That's a great idea. Yeah. This, the slow speed can't keep up, you know, eventually can't even connect. Mm -hmm. No updates are coming in. (laughs) That's, That's exactly true. And you were saying when you were, after the incident with your parents and the doctor and the diagnosis, how you never 
use, you know, use the word Alzheimer's. I am very careful not to use it around her either because she was in such denial. But we've gone to several doctor's appointments and I've thankfully, my husband got such brownie points last week. He went on my computer, looked up um, one of my friends. She's actually our legislative ambassador for our, our representative the federal representative learned too much about government in the last three or four years. And he called her and he said, she needs somebody to talk to besides me. So I'm in the car with my mom driving to an ultrasound appointment for her. And I vented a little bit. And then I thought, well, this is very rude. And I said, well, you didn't call to hear me vent. What, what's up? And she goes, no, I called to talk to you. Your husband called me. And I'm like, he did what? Oh, and she's the one that said, you need to find a dementia-friendly doctor because every single doctor I talked to, I would say, or, you know, healthcare worker. Now, you know, she has advanced Alzheimer's, right? Oh, no, she does. Like, oh, I swear I'm going to take mailing labels and put advanced Alzheimer's in large, super huge font, start slapping it on their, her medical charts because uh, uh, yes. it's... You know, because we end up seeing mm -hmm. a doctor that's not her normal doctor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they ask her questions. Well, what's going on? Well, I'm fine. It's like, that's far from the truth. <laughs> I didn't uh -oh. stop working today to run you around to the doctor because you're fine. <laughs> right. And it's very frustrating. And then when she said that, I was like, duh, I should have done that a year ago when her doc longtime doctor left that practice and I had to establish a new relationship the new provider, which was really super annoying, but I picked a very nice nurse practitioner. I liked her very much. She seemed to be on the same page with me. And then the first time I need to go bring mom to the doctor, she's not available. <laughs> it's like, oh. And then our support group facilitator was a nurse. And so the legislative ambassador friend for the Alzheimer's Association said, talk to Linda. Linda can hook you up. And I'm like, great. So it's, you know, it it's the medical profession needs a bigger education on this and the um, state of California passed a $5 million bill. It was all, we asked for 10, we got five. So we'll early next year, we'll be starting an early awareness and diagnosis program through six County health um, departments and then assess the results and hopefully be able to make it bigger statewide. And I, I just find that to be so important because people need to not be in denial. They need to, they need to know what to expect. You know, cause I have people ask me all the time, is this, do I need to worry about Alzheimer's? I'm like, do you have memory loss that affects your daily life? No, I don't. Okay. Then you're probably fine. There's others, but to me, that's the most important one. Are you using a lot more memory aids, you know, like the reminders on your phone or, thousand post-it notes everywhere no okay you're probably fine and I do have a friend at the gym that says I used to know all the young cousins like not her immediate cousins but probably mm -hmm. second or third cousins so I used to know all their names and now I, I have a hard time bringing them up and I'm like mm. well you're doing the right thing because you eat right you're at the gym you've lost a lot of weight there's not much else you can do and she figures that she probably has early cognitive impairment and I'm like it's hard when somebody asks you that and you're like yeah you might you might and I've told her to talk to a neurologist and I don't know if she has I don't pe I don't pester but I just I really would like the stigma to go away so that the world that you and I are in you with the authors and me with podcasting and everybody that I you know my state advocacy work is really interesting so we're all together helping everybody down this journey. Just like, you know, cancer used to be a stigma and it's not anymore. You, somebody tells you they got cancer and everybody's like, you know, what can I do to help make a casserole, donate right. money, go do something. Right. Right. That's, that's kind of my goal. It keeps, keeps evolving. One of my biggest passions right now is I really think the United States needs to start building communities around dementia villages mm. where people like my mom can go and be safe, but have a lot more freedom and then have communities, the communities built around it. So then we can have like 
you know, a library next door where they could be easily walked to. And there would obviously be an author's wing because that would be important. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, this is, this is massive community planning. So this is not, I don't know if this will happen in my lifetime because I'm almost 53 and I know community planning takes decades. But if they built a dementia village and then a town around it that supported the village, you had um, support groups that met there and a preschool next door that could go over and spend time with the seniors so they get secondary grandparents and there's just some such a better way to do this. Yeah. Jennifer, that, you have brilliant ideas. Absolutely brilliant. I needed to start this 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Which at that point, my daughter was a toddler, so that probably wouldn't have happened. And um, But we have been on this journey for about 20 years with my mom. So it's been a long journey. And I've seen a lot of changes, a lot of, you know, like when she was first obvious having a problem, you know, I read the 36 hour day book. That's depressing. It's useful, but it's, it's not uplifting like blue hydrangeas. Yeah. Yes. Um, and let's see who else. I um, talked to the gal that wrote weeds in Nana's garden. Oh, and I was just going to mention Catherine Harrison because you talking about having young children and, so Catherine joined us from 2016 until now. We've had three more managers come aboard, Alts Authors. Catherine, uh, we were so lucky to have her join us. She's a, an artist, graphic design. She's designed our website and um, has written the beautiful, beautiful book, Weeds in Nana's Garden, based upon her um, journey through Alzheimer's with her mother and her young daughter at the same time. And then also as a manager, um, Anne Campanella has mm -hmm. joined us and the author of Motherhood Lost and Found. And so her mother was declining from Alzheimer's as she was trying to become a mother herself and suffering multiple miscarriages. And as she eventually did conceive and have a child she was caring for the her child in much the same way that she was having to care for her own mom so those you know even though I was older and my children were in college when I became consumed with my parents care there are many people like you like Catherine Harrison like Ian Campanella who are balancing young children and an aging failing parent as well. And I just want to mention then one more person, Irene Olson has recently joined our uh, management team and her book, Requiem for the Status Quo, is fiction. And she was you know, well-established in her own uh, adult life with older children when she took care of her dad but Irene has just done such wonderful things for us recently. We've formed an actual business entity, and she's helped us gain our 501c3 nonprofit status. And so we're so excited about the opportunities that uh, that can open up for our authors and for their books and for the support of those currently on the journey. Well, I've talked to all your management staff, so I guess I'll have to branch <laughs> out now. Because <laughs> I've talked to all of the, you were the last one in that group. Yeah, well, we've got a list of 200 more people you can talk to, Jennifer. There are all those 200. Well, I guess I got about 194 left to go. <laughs> I was actually going to go on the website and, and look for new people. I think I'll look for the people that are chronicling their own journey, because that yes. would be... That's a good voice. I've talked to two people, um, one gal living with Alzheimer's. She's also an advocate, and she, she has younger onset Alzheimer's as well, like my mom. And you know, she, she was one of my very first, I think she was my very first episode. She wasn't the first person I talked to, but she was the first one I released. 
And then I met a gal through social media that's got dementia and she's a very big advocate because people look at her and say, well, you don't look sick. And she doesn't, uh, she's in Kentucky and she pretty much lets them know that she thinks they're idiots. (laughs) I have not seen a lot of her posts lately. I need to keep trying to remind myself to look because I have a feeling that she's had a big decline because there was some comments some posts about things. I was like, oh man, this is not looking good. And, and she's not very old. She was 69 when I talked to her at the beginning of this year. You know, so she's, my mom's 76. So it's like, it's hard when you talk to people whose parents aren't terribly old. And you know, another very strong category of books that we have on all authors that you might want to look at um, are, um, spouses books written by spouses about the honest care of their partner declining with alzheimer's and dementia and you know for you and i caring for a parent it's it's tough but nothing compared to like your dad trying to care for your mom if he had been able to write his own journey think how interesting that would be to people. And so we've got a lot of books written from the spouse perspective and they are gripping and riveting. And there's another person online that I talked to through social media and his wife about the same time, I think she has younger onset Alzheimer's as well. He had made a a post about, um, well, he, it was cute but he said, he made a post that said, ladies, my wife has basically forgotten the functionality of a bra and it's difficult for him to help her into it, which is true. And so he was like, uh, can some of you ladies give me some suggestions? And the suggestions were on the gamut of everything from go free to sports bras that you pull out. And I was like, I was just like, okay, that's the strangest Twitter thread I've ever read. <laughs> um, but she, from that point, which was late spring to just recently, I mean, she's really declined. And he had he had said there was one post that said that he that they were on a waiting list for her for a memory residence, and then I think it was like three weeks she was moving in, and I sent him a pr- private message. I said, the day my sister and I and our husbands moved mom into the memory residence was the worst day of my life. If you want, if you need somebody to talk to, I will be with my mom that day. So it's, I can pay attention to her and talk to you at the same time. You here is my cell phone number. And, you know, he said he, I got a message back that said that he was very grateful that I did that. He did not call. I don't know. I think the day went better for him than it did for us. But she was part of the planning. My mom, it was sprung on her. She, we moved yeah. her in two weeks after my dad died because we didn't have any other options. Yeah. You know, my sister's, my, my niece just started high school. My nephew is 10, so he's finishing elementary school. My husband and I are self-employed. I'm like, you know, we got to do something. We, we had a couple of ideas for ways to keep her in her own home and I'm very much like my dad. I'm, I can be very pessimistic. I worked on it a decade ago, maybe even more like 15 years ago. People would say, oh, you're so negative. And I'd be like, what? I'm just making a comment. It drove me crazy. So I'm like, okay, no more of this. So I, I really worked on eradicating as much of that of my personality as physically possible. But I, my, you know, I sat back one day and said, okay, what is the absolute never going to happen worst case scenarios with these alternatives we're looking for, for care with my mom. And it came down to the fact there was none of them I could live with. I thought this is not something we want to deal with ever. And when you're dealing with somebody with Alzheimer's, I was just like, no, we can't do this. And so I found a, a great memory care residence and I, I feel very blessed. There's one down the hill from my house my husband had been there while my dad was in the hospital. It is not where my mom is at, which is unfortunate because that would be nice. And I went to the next closest one, 
talked to them, knew that, you know, they were doing a sales job. So I listened to them, but I also looked around and I tried to be very critical. I tried to bring that negative back. <laughs> and, you know, they said, well, we can work with you so mom can keep your dog, her dog. It was like, here's a deposit. <laughs> I didn't vet get references. I didn't Google nothing. (laughs) And it's all been pretty good. I mean, is there, they do a great job and I got lucky. So I'm working on, on, I did talk to them. I need to work on what to look for, for a a care residence, because that could have been a disaster the way I went about that. (laughs) And you can't really quantify that. And, um, I'm so glad that worked out. Yeah, and she, I mean, after it took, the executive director said, oh, well, it'll take about a month for her to acclimate. And I remember vividly laughing at him, thinking, oh, right, they lived in their home for like literally two months shy of 47 years. That was when I realized that muscle memory is a very good way to function in a house when your brain doesn't work, because that is what my mom did. That's why it was hard to notice a lot of how bad she really was because when you've lived someplace for 47 years and they never, you know, did any massive remodeling, so the house was the same from 1970 to today, you know, you could get up and go in the kitchen and make tea or coffee with your eyes closed because you've been doing it for 50 years almost. So sure. that was interesting. And it did take about two months. And I'll never forget the day I walked in to visit she was following this gal down the hallway. And this gal was like, I got to make a phone call. Rah, rah, rah. <laughs> half, the, half the residents are always trying to break free. And my mom saw me and she goes, oh, come with me. I have to help my friend. And I've Aww. told this story. Yeah. As soon as I heard that word friend, it was like I'd found a baggie of diamonds. Aww. It was like the best day. I was like, oh, thank goodness. You know, and then we had to go last summer. So 2018, they were renovating the entire community and they did the memory care last and I knew when they got to carpeting the memory care the dog was gonna have to be rehomed and my sister and I had talked a lot about what to do with the dog she was double her body weight and it was hard to determine if she was a comfort or a problem for mom and we had talked about it we're like we know Misty's gonna have to go somewhere else sooner or later. So it was kind of nice that the decision got taken out of our hands, although the executive director felt so guilty. (laughs) He did not actually ask me or tell me she needed to be rehomed. He just let me figure that out, that that's what he was trying not to tell me. So they're, they're really great people over there. And, you know, I don't think my mom remembers their house now, which I find really interesting. Because she says, you know, she... It's, and it's complicated, as I said earlier, the sentences that she say, all the words make sense and it's strung together as a sentence, but in context, it makes zero sense. But she, you know, she talks about her room like it's her house. It's very confusing, but I don't think she remembers her house. So it's, it's, that surprises me because they were there for so long. So what other exciting things are on the horizon for all's authors? Oh, gosh, you know, we just just continuing to do what we do. Um, it's, it's such a work of the heart. Um, I can relate to that. <laughs> the authors that come to us become very involved with one another. And we, um, you know, work a lot through social media. So they end up connecting with a tribe. I think we be, we become a tribe and we connect with another tribe and, So we just want to keep doing what we're doing, finding great books that we can elevate and hopefully support caregivers through um, elevating those books. And so that's it. That's a great goal. And I haven't mentioned it in a long time, but the the podcast sort of, well, it happened by accident, sort of the way all's authors happened by accident. I had a past, I'm a photographer, uh-huh. Well, I do too many things right now. And a past client is a business coach. And I had posted this story. Mom had been in the residence about six months. 
And there was a gal there who was the restless soul and stealer of everything in sight. She moved around all the time and you had to like guard everything. Like I had to make sure that my purse was never put in place. She could see it because she'd steal it. And, you know, she didn't realize she was stealing it. Well, we had put in place the director and the med techs and I had worked on a plan to feed the dog properly. So hopefully she could lose some weight because, you know, being double your body weight is not good even for a dog. Yeah. And so I was literally trying to shove the dog into my mom's room and get my mom seated for dinner. And then I was going to go home. And this gal got very upset that I was stealing her dog. And I guess she reached out and grabbed my mom's forearm because all I know was I heard, if you touch me one more time, I'm going to knock your block off. And I thought, oh my God, we're not getting kicked out. So I, I don't even know where the dog ended up. I shoved my mom out to the courtyard and she was so angry. She was shaking, which was not unusual for my mom. But I mean, I'm sure this gal didn't grab her painfully, but she, yeah. she upset my mom tremendously. So I just, I stood out in the courtyard and I kept saying, oh, it's so sad. Her mind is so bad. We have to feel sorry for it. It was just like, I was trying to bring up all the pity I could. And in about three minutes, mom forgot. So that's one benefit of Alzheimer's. And then she looks and she goes, oh, I think everybody's sitting down to dinner. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and so I go home and my dad in his, this is one of the things in hindsight that I think was a sign of his memory issues. They'd signed them both up for the NRA. Like that was a smart thing to do with somebody with memory loss. And so I go home and all their mail was being forwarded to my house. And there's this like eight, five by nine or six by nine inch postcard black angry red font letters that said free gun and it was addressed to my mom and I'm like yeah that's what she needs oh, get to see her stopping off this gal and so oh. I put that story on Facebook and she had this client of mine said you should write a book and I said you know I think someday I will which is still on my yeah, list good. and I have two ideas so that's further along than I was two months ago and in the interim, because I figured, well, I'm going to have to write the book after mom's gone, and it's probably going to be another 20 years, and, you know, so I looked one day for a podcast to supplement what I was getting from my support group, and there really weren't very many, and the one that was there didn't speak to me, and I wasn't one that I would enjoy listening to, and a lot of them were cathartic or very, um, you know, technical, med like medically based, and like none of these work and one day I was at the gym and just like a little lightning bolt went off my head so you should start your own okay <laughs> so I did yeah so that's so we've both stumbled into this genre yeah. somehow by accident yes and connected through it mm -hmm. which I think is is really interesting we've stumbled upon something we revealed a vulnerability and we've connected by doing so, which is the beauty of it, I believe. Yeah. I, I, I try to connect all the caregivers that I meet online or in person and, and, you know, tell them you, you got to have a support group. You cannot do this by yourself. There's so many um, adult children of, you know, people with Alzheimer's or dementia that, they, they feel obligated to take care of their parent their, or both parents like you did. And they're just determined. I'm going to keep my mom home forever. I'm like, don't do that to yourself because that might not be an option. When they need 24-7 care, you can't do that. You might want to. You might try your hardest, but don't kill yourself. Try and, you know, get help and talk to people. And it's insane. So I'm hoping that with more knowledge and more awareness that people will realize that it's not a crime against their family to get help, to utilize <clears throat> caregivers or, you know, a care residence like my mom is in. I know those aren't an option for everybody. And hopefully someday there'll be even better choices. Yeah. Yeah. This has been fantastic this afternoon. I'm so glad we finally connected. Yes, thank you, Jennifer. I'm You're honored welcome. to speak with you. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. much.
speaking with all of us and I'm happy to connect with you. Well, thank you. You guys are doing a great job. So that's it for another week. Thanks for tuning in. A little housekeeping. You definitely should be following me on social media. I'm working on the YouTube page, and by the time you hear this, it might actually be worth checking out. That would be under Fading Memories Podcast on YouTube. Also, Facebook is Fading Memories Podcast, and Instagram is Alzheimer's Podcast. I've left all those links in the show notes, and I hope to see you guys online. And as always, I'll be in your ears again next Tuesday. Tuesday.